everyone. Welcome to the Herbert Smith Freehills Public Law Team's latest podcast. My name is Jasvir Randawa and I'm an of counsel here in our public law team. Today we'll be talking about the government's independent review of administrative law and the Ministry of Justice's related call for evidence, which we at HSF have recently responded to. I'm joined today by Andrew Lidbetter and Nusrat Zar, who are both partners in the public law team. Andrew, Nusrat, just as an introduction for our listeners, please could you tell us a bit about the background to this call for evidence? Thanks, Jazz. Back in July this year, the government announced that it was launching an independent review of administrative law. At the end of July, it appointed a panel to conduct the review. The panel is chaired by Lord Fawkes QC, and there are five other panellists. The government also published the terms of reference for the review, which focus largely on whether reform to certain aspects of judicial review should be made. The most recent development, as you mentioned, is that the review panel then ran a call for evidence through most of September and October to canvas submissions from various organisations, government bodies and stakeholders. That call for evidence is now closed, and we as a firm put in a response summarising our views on the various questions which were posed. These included questions across a whole host of topics relating to administrative law and judicial review. Thanks, Andrew. And Nusrat, just in terms of the purpose of this review and the timing, can you give us any insight into why the government wants to conduct this review in the first place, and in particular, why now? The launch of the review wasn't necessarily unanticipated. Uh, Indeed, one of the government's 2019 manifesto commitments was to guarantee that judicial review is available to protect the rights of individuals, while ensuring it's not abused to conduct politics by other means or to create needless delays. And this is directly referred to as the basis for the launch of this review now. Of course, this isn't the first time a review of administrative law or the judicial process has been carried out in recent years, and we'll touch on some of the reforms that have already happened later on in this podcast. However, this review does represent the broader scope for review that we have seen in recent years. The panel's task, as stated by the government, is to consider whether the right balance is being struck between the rights of citizens to challenge executive decisions and the need for effective and efficient government. Not only does that mandate extend to considering potential procedural reform, but also substantive reform to the judicial review process. As to why this commitment was part of the government's 2019 manifesto commitment in the first place, there isn't really a clear reason. There has been some speculation that it came about as a result of the government's defeat in the Miller case last year, which ended under the Supreme Court's unanimous decision that the Prime Minister's advice to Her Majesty to prorogue Parliament for an extended period was unlawful and void. The terms of reference state that the focus of the review is to examine trends in judicial review of executive action, in particular in relation to the policies and decision-making of the government. So a decision like Miller, which related to the exercise of prerogative powers, does seem relevant in that respect. However, the scope of the review panel goes much further than that, and it may be that Miller was just another contributing factor behind the launch of the review. 
In any event, it's clear from the questions that were posed in the call for evidence and the terms of reference that the potential implications of the review could be significant and wide-reaching for many areas of judicial review and wider administrative law. Thanks, Nasrat. So turning to the call for evidence itself, Andrew, were there any particular questions that stood out to you or indications of the general themes from the way the questions were framed? I think the general trend of the questions we saw and from the terms of reference which, we, which have been published points towards whether judicial review should be reformed so as to limit its scope and application or potentially to reduce the number of claims being brought. For example, the call for evidence began with questions to government departments only, asking whether they felt that certain aspects of judicial review seriously impede the proper or effective discharge of central or local government functions, without corresponding questions being asked of other potential defendants and claimants' organisations. However, as we understand it, the call for evidence has been responded to by a wide variety of organisations who represent different interests, and so we hope that the panel will benefit from their views when considering the question of where the balance lies between ensuring that judicial review is not too burdensome and facilitating access to justice. And before we go into the detail of some of the specific questions, Nusrat, what were HSF's headline views? So HSF answered it from the practitioner's perspective having the benefit of experience and acting for all parties in judicial reviews, including claimants, defendants, interested parties and interveners. We drew on our experience of working with clients from a wide ranging base and across numerous different sectors when considering these questions. As a summary, I'd say our responses generally reflected our consideration that the current mechanism for judicial review and wider administrative law does work well and doesn't need any urgent major reform. Above all, we were keen to emphasise the important role that judicial review plays in holding public bodies accountable when discharging their functions. This is designed to ensure better effective decision making rather than to impede it and to uphold the rule of law. Of course, the system needs to be designed in a way to discourage unmeritorious claims, especially because that may burden administrative functions and stand in the way of legitimate policy implementation. Andrew, some of the questions in the call for evidence considered reform to substantive law, including particularly consideration of whether the current grounds for judicial review should be codified. Could you tell us more about that, please? Yes, one of the areas for major reform which was considered in the call for evidence was the question of whether there is a case for statutory intervention in the judicial review process, and in particular, whether codifying the grounds for judicial review would add certainty and clarity for parties, where currently the source for the grounds is the common law. We responded to reflect our view that the current position does not need to change. Not only do we think codification would not promote clarity or accessibility in the law, but we also don't think it would increase public trust and confidence in the process, which was a point raised in one of the notes in the terms of reference. Our starting point is that we don't believe there is a lack of certainty with regard to the current grounds of judicial review based on our experience. Indeed, codification could itself 
give rise to satellite litigation. For example, if one were to codify and attempt to define the meaning of the ground of irrationality, that could raise questions as to what that word means and how it should be applied in the particular context of a case. Another point here is that having, for example, a list of grounds enshrined in statute could inhibit the ability of the law to keep pace with developments. Judicial review is a mechanism which must be able to cater for a wide range of contexts and circumstances, and it's grounded in guiding principles such as the proper separation of powers and fundamental rights considerations. Arguably trying to codify this might have the unintended consequence of limiting this adaptability and any new legislation might suffer from having a lack of guiding principles which currently underpin the grounds of judicial review. Also practically speaking we didn't think the grounds of judicial review could be codified in any effective or meaningful way not least because of their overlapping nature and the way they have been developed in very nuanced ways over decades by the courts. Thanks. It's not hard to see how codification could have a really significant impact on the whole landscape of judicial review. But this wasn't the only potential substantive change that was canvassed in the terms of reference and the call for evidence. The government also asked questions around potential reform of what decisions and powers should be subject to judicial review at all. Nusrat, do you want to tell us a little more about that? Yes, this is probably one of the more controversial aspects of the review, and it seems to be aimed at whether the law around what decisions and powers are justiciable should be clarified or reformed. In our response, we set out the view that we don't believe there needs to be a change in the current law or for any major clarification to be made here. Typically, the question of whether an issue is justiciable involves a court considering whether it has the expertise to reach a judgment on the issue in question. And we'd consider it surprising if this question were taken away from judges who, in our view, are best placed to consider this particular question and where appropriate have shown willingness to defer to the expertise of the executive where such expertise is greater than that of the court. The courts, when determining judicial review cases, are concerned with whether a particular decision is unlawful, either because it's outside the scope of the relevant power or because it's been exercised unlawfully within the scope of the power. In either case, the question is whether the power has been exercised unlawfully. This goes to the very heart of the function of judicial review and the court's crucial constitutional role as an independent check on the executive. This would be eroded if the executive, through its current majority in Parliament, were able to decide which types of powers are not justiciable under any circumstances. Thanks, Nusrat. So this is obviously something the panel will have to consider very carefully in light of the potential constitutional implications. Turning now to questions about reform of procedure and process in judicial review. Andrew, what was the general theme here? The call for evidence and terms of reference asked questions about the different aspects of procedure in quite a comprehensive way. The notes to the terms of reference referred to the number of procedural issues of possible concern that have been raised over the years and the opportunity to review the general machinery of judicial review as part of this what was described as comprehensive assessment of judicial review. Back in 2012 to 13, 
the government had consulted on various proposals for reform to stem the growth in applications for judicial review and implemented a number of procedural changes following those consultations. We set out the view in our response to the current review that those reforms have achieved their goal of reducing the number of judicial review claims brought by filtering out unmeritorious claims. The general direction of reform of judicial review in recent years, therefore, appears to have been to seek to make claims harder for claimants from a procedural perspective. We therefore don't believe there's any need for further reform along these lines. In particular, we would be cautious about any further reform which could risk tipping the balance of the judicial review system in such a way that gives rise to serious concerns over access to justice. So there were questions concerning time limits, uh, whether the costs of judicial review are proportionate, questions over standing, remedies in judicial review, as well as questions around ways of avoiding proceedings such as ADR and settlement. Now, we don't have enough time to go into every response on procedure that was given. But Nusra, were there any particular points of note that you wanted to draw out? Uh, yes, I'll give one example of a point we were concerned with relating to time limits and the pre-action protocol. The call for evidence asked whether the current procedure strikes the right balance between enabling a claimant to lodge a claim in time and ensuring effective government without too many delays. The government's 2013 consultation on judicial review had already reduced the time limit for bringing claims in planning matters and procurement cases to six weeks and 30 days respectively. And the current general time limit for judicial review is to issue a claim promptly and in any event within three months. In our response, we wanted to emphasise that this time limit shouldn't be shortened any further. Indeed, we feel that this time limit allows parties time to engage in the pre-action protocol, which can often flush out issues and merits of a claim, and it's not uncommon for this correspondence to result in a resolution without the need to file a judicial review claim. So we think it's important to retain this time scale, and shortening it would ultimately be counterproductive in terms of trying to reduce the number of claims that are properly brought. Thanks, Mr. So in terms of next steps, I understand it's now up to the panel to consider the material before it and put forward a recommendation on what, if any, reform should be made. And the panel's due to report back later this year. It's notable that there's been no discussion about whether there'll be a consultation on any changes or reforms actually proposed by the panel. Given the importance of many of the issues contained in the terms of reference and in the call for evidence, I imagine that many organisations and individuals would want to seek to feed in their views on any specific proposed changes. So you'd hope that any concrete proposals are subject to a fair consultation, including with those who'd be directly impacted and those who'd be able to offer views based on their experience of practising in the area, who might be able to offer insight on any potential unintended consequences that may result. Andrew, Nusrit, just before we sign off, any concluding remarks? I think it's fair to say that the review could entail significant constitutional implications, but the extent to which the panel will propose actual reform is still unclear. We certainly hope that our response has contributed to a body of submissions from a wide range of different organisations and that the panel will be able to consider them carefully 
before making any proposals. It's also worth noting that the House of Commons Public Administration and Constitutional Affairs Committee has this autumn launched a call for evidence on the main purpose and output of the government's proposed Constitution, Democracy and Rights Commission. The proposed remit of this commission includes consideration of the relationship between the government, Parliament and the courts, and it will be interesting to see the committee's findings on this topic and how they fit with the remit and any recommendations made by the independent review. Thanks very much, Andrew and Nusrat. So this is certainly an area that we'll be continuing to watch. For those who'd like to find out more, we've published some blog posts on the developments mentioned so far, including on the terms of reference and on our response to the call for evidence. If you'd like to find out more about these and any other public law developments, please do subscribe to our HSF public law blog.